0: Hi, everyone. Sydney here from GMF's Out of Order.
1: And this is Zachary. I produce the show. We're interrupting the Out of Order stream today to bring you a new episode of another podcast we thought you might like.
0: It's called Democracy Works, and it's produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you like Out of Order and the stories we tell about the world's current dysfunction, you'll love Democracy Works. Each episode dives into different aspects of what it means to live in a democracy today from gerrymandering to the free press to democratic backsliding around the globe. The episode you'll hear today really couldn't be more relevant. It's a discussion with Larry Diamond, a leading voice on democracy issues, about China's rise and how it's affecting democracy around the world. Anyone who took inter-level political science in college has probably heard of soft power and hard power. But Diamond talks about China's use of sharp power. That's the use of disinformation, deception, coercion, even bribery to shape the narrative about China. It's a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, and we hope you like it.
1: New episodes of Democracy Works are released every Monday. You can listen to Democracy Works on democracyworkspodcast.com or by searching Democracy Works in your podcast app.
0: And we'll be back with our regularly scheduled out-of-order programming next week.
2: China is now increasingly pushing not just its power, but its model of authoritarian state capitalism as a better, more efficient model. And China is increasingly, like Russia's been trying to do, seeking to discredit the model of liberal democracy and the universal values that lie behind the liberal international order.
3: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
4: And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and this is Democracy Works.
3: So, Jenna, today we have uh,
1: uh, the one and only Larry Diamond.
4: That's right. (laughs) Larry is a... Um, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is the former director of the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at Stanford. And as if that wasn't enough, he's the author of a new book called Ill Winds: Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. And the Chinese Ambition piece of that title is is what we focus our discussion on today.
3: Yeah, I'm really excited about this interview. We've talked at various times throughout the uh couple of years now that Life we've been that projects. we've been on the air about how democracies die and uh, threats to democracy, mostly those that come internally from within the country. Uh, I think Larry Diamond here is laying out the threats to democracy from authoritarian regimes, in particular Russia and what we'll, what I believe we'll talk about with him today, China. Larry is saying that these authoritarian regimes, as they gain power, both economic and political, are themselves threats to democracy absolutely especially liberal uh, yeah democracy.
1: and and yeah. um and i think our nation has been for very good reasons focused on the threat from russia and the you know um influence through social media etc but uh, i don't know that we are uh, sufficiently attuned to the kind of distinctive powerful and um Overwhelming uh, strategy around China and and their and their push for this authoritarian, anti-democratic model.
3: Right. Well, frankly, it's been a bit of a, a bit a bit of a muddle in terms of American foreign policy towards China. Because on the one hand, the president has been pretty tough and aggressive in taking on a variety of trade issues with China. So he, he's recognized the threat that China poses. On the other hand, we pulled ourselves out of TPP, mm-hmm. the Trans-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, Partnership, partnership, which was intended as a defense against China influence.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, it, it is a very influence. difficult position for American corporations because you are talking about four times the market of the United States. It's just an you know an incredible. Uh, an incredible
3: market for us to be right, and you yeah, can't avoid be, it.
1: You can't compete on a worldwide scale, scale without
3: but, being but, involved in China. But I wonder sometimes if Americans have an appreciation for how, even though there are there, there is much that is. That is similar to a market economy in China. Well, there is a, a form of capitalism in China. It's a very different kind of capitalism than we have. Absolutely, it, it is. I mean, it, it's a state-owned capitalism, right. for one thing. Right. This, I mean, this, and you it's know, a stipul- it's a capitalism without liberty and freedoms. That's
1: exactly right. It's it is a an authoritarian capitalism or a state-controlled capitalism, however you want to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, the the assumption was always within the United States that once China achieves middle-class economic status, once free enterprise gets a foothold, uh, it's just going to be impossible to avoid a kind of expansion of liberty and democracy. And China has very adroitly Shown that they can do both. You know, they can they can avoid the the democracy and still achieve amazing economic
3: growth. You know what we haven't really talked about is the threat that places like China pose to other democracies, both in Asia, emerging around the world, and even to the United States, especially as the U.S. under Donald Trump withdraws from world leadership right. in terms of being a leading you know, uh, leading liberal democracy.
1: Well, there's a, th- there are a lot of well-established democracies who are far more focused on an internal domestic political struggle than they are even thinking about an external struggle, which creates an opportunity, right, that, that China is doing a really good job of exploiting. Right. Uh, but I do think you're right. Um, Diamond talks a lot about the, the culture of a democracy as being the most essential element. The, w- the way that a, the democracy is going to sustain itself is n- not simply through institutions, but through culture. And, and right now, especially in the United States, we have a democratic culture that is um, more beleaguered than it's been in, in decades, to say the least.
4: Guys, lots to unpack here. We've set the table pretty well, I think, and we'll hear more from Larry. So let's go to my interview with Larry Diamond. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Larry Diamond. Larry, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works.
2: I'm delighted to be with you.
4: So, uh, we have wanted to talk about China on our show for a while, and uh, we could maybe think of no better person to to talk about uh, some of the the threats that China is posing to liberal democracy uh, throughout the world, really. And it's it's something that you explore uh, in your new book, Ill Winds. So we'll dive into some of those themes here and and some of the the tactics that China is using. But before we get to that, I think it's it, it uh, might be helpful to set the stage of. You know what is the the vision that China is is trying to sell to the rest of the world?
2: Well, I think um, it's multiple visions. Um, one is uh, of China's natural, inevitable, and rightful rise to a leadership role in the world in the world's geopolitical affairs. Ten, fifteen years ago. This was expressed in a more benign form by former Deputy Secretary of State, Robert Zelik, when he laid out a vision of the People's Republic of China becoming a responsible stakeholder in global affairs. If it were merely that, uh, China becoming a responsible partner in addressing global problems of security, humanitarian crises, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, Of course, that would be a welcome development, but China is uh, increasingly trying to become, I think, the dominant power in Asia, uh, the dominant economic uh, power in the world, uh, the technological leader of the world, and um, the geopolitical shaper of the future direction of the world. And if it were just a normal country or even you know, only a modestly authoritarian country like Singapore. I'm not sure this would be uh, such cause for concern, but China is becoming again, um, you know, more authoritarian, even neo-totalitarian. And we can talk about this with its social credit system, its intense repression of the Uyghur and other religious and cultural minorities in China. It's tightening repression and concentration of power under Xi Jinping, and it's domineering claims to the South China Sea and to uh, you know, open access and exclusive access for it uh, in other Asian countries, buying up ports and, and infrastructure, and frankly, politicians as well. All of this is ominous Uh, and, uh, you know, all of China's technological theft of intellectual property and other means of coercing the transfer of high cutting edge technology, which it claims is for purely China's commercial leadership in the world, is being plowed uh, immediately back into the modernization and expansion at a dizzying pace, of the People's Liberation Army, which is the whole military of China. So I think all of these trends um, have gone from being concerning to being alarming.
4: You've worked in this region for for a long time. Was this something that people kind of foresaw or or when when did things kind of reach that that tipping point from concerning to to alarming as as you, you just mentioned?
2: I think that there uh was has been a gradual trend of China's rising uh military and commercial power. It's accelerating coercion and daring uh, even plunder in terms of high technology. And uh, it's gradually increasing kind of bullying posture on on the regional and world stage. But this really crossed a wholly different threshold with uh, Xi Jinping's rise to uh, power in 2012, 2013, and uh, his increasing domination uh, uh, and personalization. Uh, and submission of um, you know the Chinese political system and society and and uh, generally the entire region to his personal will and concentrated power. Uh, so I'd say it's in the last three to five years that we're really realizing the scale and scope of this problem and the increasingly authoritarian character of the regime that lies behind it
4: right and so as people who generally value liberal democracy i think it's easy for us to look at this and say well this is this is terrible why would anyone ever buy into something like this but you know why why might or or why are countries in in africa or you know elsewhere in asia finding what this this model, what china is 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 trying to to push, appealing.
2: I'm not sure people find the full model appealing. So it is true. China is now increasingly pushing not just its power but its model of authoritarian state capitalism as a better, more efficient model. And China is increasingly like Russia's been trying to do seeking to discredit the model of liberal democracy and the universal values that lie behind the liberal international order. That is another new element to what Xi Jinping is doing. It's much more explicit and in your face in challenging uh, democracy itself. I think what appeals to people around the world, uh, our public opinion data show, is China's rapid economic growth not its suppression of religious freedom, freedom of expression, the internet, and so on. There's no way you can sell that to ordinary people as an appealing model uh, that they wanna live under themselves. But the allure is that uh, somehow uh, if countries can achieve China's rapid economic growth, and if China can downplay, minimize, or mask which it is certainly trying to do, uh, the intensely authoritarian and in the technological elements, I'd say uh, Orwellian aspects of its uh, increasingly authoritarian rule, then that model can be appealing to people around the world because people want to get rich fast like China did. And so once people see the downsides of the China model, that the Chinese people have massively lost their privacy and freedom, that um, there is this uh, Orwellian surveillance state that is emerging where uh, people are constantly being monitored in their social media, monitored in their physical movements, having their DNA uh, collected you know, having their faces being recognized with artificial intelligence, having all of this mashed up into a, uh, you know, cloud computing system that will produce a social credit score for the political loyalty, ultimately, of every Chinese citizen. When people around the world hear this element of the dark side, of the People's Republic of China, it's not very appealing.
4: Right, but the, I mean, there you, you mentioned that there are ways though, that China is trying to control that narrative, right? Or, or, or control the, the way that some of these things are perceived throughout the world.
2: Right, well, this brings us to, I think one of the uh, most interesting, and yes, I do use the word alarming elements of China's rising international profile, which is its uh, very rapidly accelerating efforts to project sharp power, not the soft power of open and transparent persuasion to its culture and its model and its institutions, but the sharp power of disinformation, deception, uh, coercion, uh, bribery, uh, and penetration of the political and civil institutions of open societies to try and shape the narrative about China, to censor any mention of the dark side of what it's doing, to censor um, or recast uh, any account of uh, its um, massive violation of human rights in Xinjiang province where somewhere between one and uh, two and a half or three million Uyghur Muslims uh, are now in uh, re-education camps, which are really political concentration camps and beginning to be dispersed around the country, uh, where human rights lawyers have been rounded up and um, abused uh, and intimidated and prevented from doing their work, where journalists and professors are increasingly under- rigid monitoring and ideological control. Uh, they don't want people to know about any of this. What they want people to know is that you know China is a benign power in the world, it's an idealistic country trying to help people develop. Um, they don't want the story to get out that the way they help people develop is by lending money at con- commercial rates to build It's one-belt, one-road infrastructure, and then when countries land in debt uh, as a result of this, even debt that uh, can never be repaid, China rapaciously claims future supplies of oil, timber, natural resources, 99-year leases on ports and other infrastructure, uh, and countries lose their sovereignty. China doesn't want any of this to be known, so Increasingly, they are uh, trying to use money uh, to win over journalists, to plant um, stories in newspapers, uh, to discourage any independent reporting of what they're doing. Uh, They're trying to manipulate overseas Chinese uh, communities to uh, become advocates for the cause. Uh, They're using the classic structures institution Uh, institutional arrangements, financial arrangements, uh, and um, supposed, you know, cultural ties and obligations of the United Front structure to try and get um, Chinese Americans, Chinese Australians, Chinese living in Europe and Africa and so on to do the bidding of the regime. Uh, And um, this has very serious implications for uh, democracy, the rule of law, transparency, and openness. The difference between uh, soft power and sharp power, as noted by the former Australian prime minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, is that China's sharp power efforts are using tactics that are covert, coercive, and corrupting. And that just can't be allowed in a democracy.
4: Right. Yeah, that's, that's such a powerful line, such a such a, a, a great way to to describe these tactics. You, you also talk in your book um, about some of the ways China is wielding its its power, its influence through universities and, and also through philanthropic organizations. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like?
2: China uses money <laughs> to try and win people over. Uh, there's no question about that. And um it's not only uh, individuals, but institutions. And so, uh, you know, there's some 150 Confucius Institutes in the United States now, and several hundred more around the world that have uh, the generous support of the Chinese Ministry of Education to teach language, Chinese language on college campuses. But, um, at the price of having the Chinese Communist Party state's Ministry of Education appoint and guide the instructors and prepare the curriculum, and so on, on many case campuses, this, if not most, this seems to be relatively innocuous, but it can lead to a certain um, censorship uh, of uh, difficult topics. And it can lead um, the Chinese government to use this as leverage to demand that certain kinds of speakers and certain kinds of topics not appear in the campus conversation. You've got um, a large number of Chinese students and scholars associations on college campuses in the U.S., And these may be, and we have documented instances where they have been not only funded by nearby Chinese consulates, but instructed to protest when people uh, come and speak about um, Tibet, including the Dalai Lama, or China's human rights violations in Xinjiang province, or uh, when, when speakers might question China's claims to and militarization of the South China Sea. And a lot of this has as its goal, the construction of a web of financial ties, financial partnership, sympathy and dependence, so that professors and universities will just think twice before they become too critical of China. And so they will be open to cooperation on um, more or less the terms of the PRC, happily receiving delegations chosen by the PRC, clipping the criticism they might offer of the People's Republic of China. Often what you have is very well-intentioned and experienced scholars knowing this is a danger, but you know wanting access to China wanting to be able to get a visa to go to the country, wanting the ability to see people. And therefore, you know, if not becoming personally immersed in these questionable personal ties that, you know, have expectations of delivery, at a minimum, you know, trimming what they're they're saying. In, in essence, and... Some uh, scholars uh, have used this term to us, engaging in self-censorship so they can continue to have access to the People's Republic of China. As a result of this, and as a result of the fact that many Chinese students know that they're being monitored by their peers and others on American university campuses, knowing that the Chinese state is monitoring their social media posts and so on. Knowing that if they speak up at public events, it could be reported back uh, to China and their scholarship could be at risk or their parents could be in trouble. You know, uh, freedom of expression and freedom of academic and intellectual inquiry are being constrained on U.S. college campuses, not just in China.
4: So the, the other piece of, of ill winds or, or another major theme is that in in many ways, the U.S. and other Western democracies are not prepared for some of the, the threats that that China poses. Can can you just just talk briefly about that, about what you know, why why we're not maybe necessarily as prepared as we ought to be to to deal with the, the threats to democracy that are coming from China?
2: Well, I think some of this has come on pretty rapidly, uh, as China has emerged now with stunning speed as the world's uh, second and nearly nearly co-equal superpower. Um, and I think Americans, having grown weary from the burdens of global leadership, are reluctant to come to grips with the implications of having a neo-totalitarian rival superpower trying to penetrate it, it's in societal institutions, those in the U.S., steal our technology, our most sensitive cutting-edge technologies, artificial intelligence, drone technology, robotics, supercomputing, and so on and edge us out uh, in terms of global, commercial, geopolitical, and military uh, leadership in the world. Uh, I think it's very hard for Americans to get their arms around this. Uh, And there are a lot of people who sincerely have a more benign and sympathetic view of, of China and think that those of us who are ringing these alarm bells now are new cold warriors. We don't want a cold war. We just want a fair, balanced, and transparent uh, set of relations, trade relations, political relations, based on um, you know, some minimal degree of respect for the international rule of law and the human rights and privacy of uh, our own citizens, uh, if not uh, the, the citizens of the People's Republic of China uh, as well. Uh, And I think we're really reaching a crunch point now on Hong Kong as uh, the world wakes up to the desperation and passion and commitment of the more than two million people in Hong Kong who have come out at one time or another to protest for democracy and against Beijing's encroachments on the civil liberties and rule of law that... um, have made Hong Kong a distinctive part of the Chinese uh, firmament. Um, I think the world is waking up to how serious the situation is.
4: Yeah, the the world is is waking up, but is, is that is that message getting through? Do, I guess do you think that the what's happening in, in in Hong Kong is likely to move the needle at all?
2: It's moving the needle globally, of course, because China. The People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party, has um, such an information monopoly uh, within its borders. um, Most people are getting a very jaundiced and biased view within mainland China of what's happening in Hong Kong. But I think word is getting out globally. And, you know, there are a non-trivial number of... uh, professionals, students, intellectuals, uh, and um, other well-informed people in the People's Republic of China who travel to Hong Kong, travel internationally, have uh, virtual private networks that can enable them to navigate around the Chinese great firewall of internet censorship. And I think there is a certain slice of the Chinese uh, population that's well aware of what's going on in Hong Kong and how sinister uh, the Chinese Communist Party's intransigence and denial of Hong Kong's rights uh, is and what it forebodes for um, the future direction of the People's Republic of China. And certainly the people of Taiwan have taken clear and, and vigilant note of what's been going on in Hong Kong. I think the real question now is to what extent ordinary Americans in a variety of institutions that have never found the need to worry that China might be a threat or that China might be seeking to uh, compromise the integrity of our values and institutions. People as I said, in local government, in state legislatures. in universities, uh, in the mass media, in think tanks, uh, in businesses, whether they are going to come to a sufficiently clear-eyed, knowledgeable, and resolute understanding of the rising risks of compromise uh, and um, uh, coercion uh, that are coming from uh, relations with uh, the Chinese Communist Party state and insist on educate themselves about this, acquire the necessary information to vet the relationships, join with one another to insist on common standards for these partnerships, exchanges, relationships, and so on, and refuse to be intimidated or played off one against another.
4: Right. Yeah. No. That. And I mean, to to be able to resist the threat, for example, when a Chinese company shows up in your town with you know offering jobs and and millions or or, or billions of dollars, that's that's a hard decision to to turn away from.
2: Laying fiber optics and so on for maybe a city in, um in in great financial need, but you know. When Huawei lays fiber optic cables or sets up a 5G uh, infrastructure of communications, this is not an act of charity. Huawei is an extension of the Chinese Communist Party state. It's not disclosed. It's masquerading as a private uh, company. But I think most people who study China know this to be pure fiction. Uh, and so... um you know, if you're going to allow this kind of company to process everybody's data, what's going to happen to it? It's going to be monitored, it's going to be captured, it's going to be sent back to Chinese uh, supercomputers, and our democratic rights of privacy as individual citizens, and our national economic uh, and uh, military security are going to be at grave risk,
4: right, uh, Larry? I know you. You have to go. the The last thing I, I want to ask you about is the trade war. Uh, amid all of these things that we've we've just been talking about, uh, it seems President Trump is solely focused on on one very particular uh, aspect of of the U.S. relationship with China. Um so where where does the where does the the trade war fit in here, and also the the TPPA? I, I know you talk about that in your book as well.
2: Uh, there is a lot of gratitude uh, throughout Asia to President Trump, uh, among governments and civil societies for pushing back against China's domineering ways, uh, and for really taking a stand on China's uh, misappropriation of intellectual property and high technology and its general bullying posture uh, in trade relations, I think that for the U.S. to now insist that China's theft of intellectual property has to stop and that it has to open up its markets to American companies without uh, the companies promising to transfer their most sensitive technology and exchange, uh, these are all good and long overdue things. uh, And I congratulate uh, the president and his administration for that stand. But the problem is there's too much bombast and too much of a general indiscriminate and inchoate posture of President Trump around the whole trade issue. The trade deficit in itself economists insist is not the core problem. Uh, and then, you know, you've got all of the other miserly and uh, short sighted attitudes surrounding this with respect to um, the crying need for a new multilateral trading arrangement that would rise to higher standards uh, and integrate a uh, the countries of East and Southeast Asia uh, and the Pacific region uh, around a more, um, I'd say, uh, democracy-centered trading union or trading collaboration. Uh, It doesn't rule out eventual Chinese entry, but it certainly imposes very tough conditions on that and generates, I'd say, a badly needed counterweight to the uh, coalition that China is trying to build economically and geopolitically of client states and dependent states that are virtual, virtual satellites around its hegemony. That's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, promised, a new collaboration, for uh, multilateral freer trade, that would be good for economic growth in the US, and that would also be a counterweight to China's hegemonic ambitions. And I do still believe that we need to revisit this, that it is increasingly a compelling and urgent national interest of the United States to join maybe renegotiate around the margins, but ultimately join the Trans-Pacific Partnership.
4: Well, Larry, we will leave it there. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. But, um, you know, your your book and the uh, report that, that you mentioned from the Hoover Institute uh, sound, are, are great places for listeners to go if they want to dive deeper uh, into the threats that, that China poses to democracy and also what um, folks can do to push back against them. So, uh, Larry Diamond, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you.
1: I I was struck by uh, our interview, Jenna's interview, in the same way I was struck by the book, that it is um it is brave in that he you know he names names and and calls out people not just politicians but also you know um hangers on who are getting rich at the hands of these um authoritarians but also just how straightforward and and um um no couching in academic ease when in, in terms of how he's framing these the way he sees it and um and I think that's a that's a real contribution to the public debate right now
3: and it also reflects an understanding of for example what we read in how democracies die and other work that we've talked about which talks about how democracies can sort of become authoritarian mm-hmm. over time they understand these things of course yeah and I think you know you have
1: Russia, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia—kind of comparing notes, right? Oh, that worked for them. Maybe, maybe we should try that too, right? Um, but in any case, I also—is that your f- axis of evil? <laughs> That's—it's <What>? right <laughs> up there, man. <laughs> I can be—I can be <laughs> persuaded to include others, but they're pretty good. Um, I—but I do think it is, you know, important to kind of go back to this idea that, you know, the United States and many. Um, Established democracies throughout the world simply are not prepared for the kind of uh, competition, not to say uh, Cold
3: War, that is in the offing. I'd go another step and say that— you know, the, the divisiveness we see in the United States right now, which has become significantly worse, I think, over yes. the last several years, it just creates more openings for Right, them. exactly. And they're smart enough to see
1: that and exploit yeah. it. And, and as um, the United States and other countries retrench and talk about America first, uh, China is all too happy to go into these uh, countries, and especially in Africa, yeah, build their infrastructure. Build their for infrastructure, them. and then say, "Oh, and by the way, those those uh, precious metals. How about you? We just sign that onto the agreement." I mean, they are playing, as you say, the long game, and um, this is appropriate for our culture that's been around for what eight thousand years, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, I, you know, and and. Right. They have the resources economically, but also just in terms of uh, candle power and education. Um, And, you know, it's not that there isn't something distinctively admirable about what they're doing. It's just that if you – they are doing this in a way that is – undermining
3: not just democracy
1: here but undermining human rights yeah,
3: and 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 think of the contrast with the cold war i mean if, if there was one thing during the cold war as i remember we could at least look at these communist countries and say oh, that's an economic system that simply doesn't work right. people are miserable mm-hmm. under it it can't it doesn't produce efficiently in any way but i think china is showing actually that you can have a you know somewhat effective oh, market based or market type economy uh, but without any of the freedoms yeah, I mean, that we have come to associate with I market actually, I actually—I mean, you know
1: this—but in class, I've shown people, you know, here's a here's a picture of the uh, of
3: Shanghai skyline. I mean, it it's incredibly impressive, and we're used to thinking of a sort of connection between a capitalist economy and freedom. That was always the and, argument, and, and political freedom, right? But they're showing the two do not necessarily have to go together. Well, and
1: and that. You know, for most of the third world, again, what they want is to be able to have a middle-class lifestyle, right? They want to be able to have three meals a day and color TV and and air conditioning. They don't care about um, whether or not they can write an op-ed to the newspaper or march in protest. And, and you know, just in terms of hierarchy and needs, it, it's a pretty persuasive argument they're making to a lot of people in the third world. Yeah. Anyway.
3: Well, this is a great book, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's terrific a terrific interview. I really enjoyed reading. that.
1: Yeah, book. and yeah. Um, and you know, we we all of us who are concerned about democracy owe a, a debt of gratitude to Larry Diamond for his life's work. Yep. So my name's Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. This has been Democracy Works.